I want to do something, just a little bit of a one-off today. Uh, we, we finished our series last week. No, we didn't, the week before. And um, I want to just do a one-off today looking at Psalm 32. I think it's on page 761 in the Brown Bibles in front of you. And uh, so if you just flick there, you're going to need to keep it open because our plan is just to walk our way through this psalm, trusting that God's going to arrest our hearts and speak to us. This morning, Psalm 32. I won't, I'm not going to read it up front, we'll read it as we go. Whenever we, whenever we gather like this, whenever we come together as a church, beneath all the kind of friendliness and the love that we have for one another and the hellos and all the rest of it, you know, there's a, always the strong possibility that there is some crazy stuff going on in your heart, in your life. Uh, not always. I know sometimes you really are just as simple as you seem on the outside. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes there's kind of weird things going on. Um, some of us, you wouldn't know it, but some, some of us are carrying burdens from years ago. Or things we've done or things done to us that cause us to feel a heaviness, a guilt, a weight on our conscience, a weight on our, on our lives. Some of us... Um, have been holding that stuff in and never spoken to, to anyone about it, maybe never spoken to God about it. Um, others of you are in the fires of decision right now in terms of really feeling like you're, you're, in, you're at a crossroads or a, a wide junction in terms of your faith because you know where God wants to lead you, but you also know that there's this things pulling you away. And, uh, you know, it's quite normal in a church like ours to, to know that there are a few people who are at that point. You know, we're always going to find a few people who are at that point. And you know, sadly, some people walk away. And others of us are just find ourselves you know, wanting to do God's will, but always caught in these cycles of sin and then repentance and sin again. So I'm just trying to say, you know, our lives are often messier than they seem on the outside. And of course, you don't have to come to church and just lay it all bare. It's not very sociable necessarily to do that, is it? But sometimes you do have trusted friends who you speak to and open up to, and that's wonderful. But we come to church needing God's word, needing God to touch us. We need food, medicine, and new clothes. And thankfully, Jesus described himself as the answer to all those needs. He said that he's the bread of life. He says that when you're hungry and you feel that desperate need to be satiated and satisfied. He says, I'm the bread of life. He spoke about himself as being like a doctor, a physician. He said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. So if you find yourself in this place thinking, I'm the only one here who's broken. For one thing, that's not true. For another thing, Jesus says exactly why he summoned you and brought you here. He wants to give you medicine for your soul. And we also feel a need to go out of here with new clothes. You come in feeling a bit tattered. And Jesus, you know, in his parable of the prodigal son, he described the son having come home from however long he was away. Uh, and he'd, come, he'd been in the pigsties. And he came home probably smelling bad and looking awful. And what does the father do? The father puts a new robe on his son as he welcomes him home. This psalm is the kind of psalm that speaks into that sense of need, that sense of desperation. And what I want us to do is, is just handle this a little bit more differently. We're going to just walk our way through and meditate on what 
David is saying to us, what he's teaching us about faith in God through this. Let's begin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're arrested by that first word, blessed, because it's wanting to answer the question of the human heart, the question that I know is in every human heart, which is what is the way to lasting joy and the way to lasting happiness? And while the Bible gives us a few different angles on that question, really it comes down to this one thing, that we need to be forgiven, that we need to know forgiveness that we need to know what it is to have our relationship with God mended and made right. Blessed is the man, he puts it in three different ways. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. It's pretty straightforward what he's saying there, but then he puts it in a different way. Whose sin is covered. You think about the worst things in your life, the things that you're most ashamed about, and he says, that's the stuff which God takes away from you and buries and covers up never to be seen again. God himself causes himself to forget them. The Bible says that he's forgotten our sins. I don't think it means literally, but it means that God does not hold them in his consciousness so that when he looks at you, he can look at you without sin. Profound thought, isn't it? And he puts it in a third way, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. We might say accounts. You think about your life as being like a giant spreadsheet. Already we're having nightmares, (laughs) horrible things. If you were to start racking up, if you run a personal budget on a spreadsheet, you know how those little numbers just begin to add up and add up and add up to one great big number on your total row. And if you think about the small wrongs and the big wrongs, and you start adding them up, you think, oh my goodness, my life is, is a tally of evil. And he says, the Lord doesn't account, he doesn't count that iniquity. And we have in our law system the the possibility that if you make a hash of running your business and you grind it into the ground and the whole thing just goes belly up, you can file for bankruptcy. Apparently Donald Trump's done it a few times. Um, But here in the UK, I think the law's a little bit more tricky. You file for bankruptcy, you're going to find it difficult to get new loans. It might be more difficult to start the next business. There's this big black mark against your name. But what God is saying here and what David is teaching us here is that the forgiveness God offers us is one where he doesn't even count the iniquity. It's not like bankruptcy where he just chalks it up and says, let's just start again, shall we? That was a mess and we'll just keep a black mark against your name. It's like, it's like it never happened. But then in this last line here, verse 2, we have the key through which David wants to teach us Everything he has to say in this psalm. He says that blessed is one in whose spirit there is no deceit. When we think about the amazing reality of what it is to have a clean conscience and a purified heart and to be made right with God, there is only one problem. He's talking here about what it is to have a deceitful spirit. And I don't think he just means somebody who's prone to telling white lies or whatever, if there was such a thing, but someone who's given to lying. I don't think he means that. I think he means this blessed person, this forgiven person, is someone who's given up hiding. 
lying to themselves, lying to God, trying to pretend like everything's okay, or trying to, to cover it up. He says that's what it means to have a deceitful spirit. And the forgiven person, the blessed one, is the one who has no deceit in his spirit. He goes on, and he starts to open up what happens to have a deceitful spirit, a non-deceitful spirit. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You've got to imagine, David is known as a mighty, mighty man. I'm sure that his frame was bound in muscles, that he was impressive to look at as he grew into his man strength. Maybe not so much when he was a teenager on the field with Goliath, but as he grew into a warrior. David had killed his thousands. He was a strong, strong man. But what he's describing here is a wasting sickness in his spirit. And it comes down to this, that forgiveness, though free, is not automatic. What do I mean? A few years ago, some of you are probably too young to even remember these. You remember iPod Nanos, the tiny little iPods? And I, some of you were at primary school. It's weird to even think about. But when I, when I got an iPod Nano in the mid-2000s. And uh, you know how you do you use these things for a few years? And then it became obsolete because I had something else. And then it went in a drawer uh, not to see the light of day. Until one day I was flicking through a newspaper and I saw Apple were recalling iPod Nanos for fear that they... Um, might, some of these might explode and then they were going to replace them at a replacement thing. And you just had to punch in the product number on this web page and they would tell you whether you're, you're, you're uh, eligible for a free replacement. And of course, my deepest fear was that this iPod that I never used that was in a drawer might just explode one day. So I, I punched in the number and lo and behold, I was due a free replacement. And all I had to do was pop it in the envelope, send it off to Apple and they would send one back to me. And they did, of course, and I never used that one either. <laughs> but my point was this, that the new thing was free, but it wasn't automatic. There's only perchance that I'd been flicking through the paper, that I'd seen that Apple were doing this recall, and that I'd made the effort to punch in the number and find out that I was eligible. And forgiveness is a bit like that, because whilst it is free... It is not automatic. It's possible that you can live the rest of your life from here on to your deathbed and never experience the forgiveness of God. It's possible you'll never know what it is to have a totally clear conscience. Because while it's free, it's not automatic. When I kept silent, he says. When I held it in. When I pretended like it wasn't there. When I tried to justify it and excuse myself and make myself out to be a victim. When I tried to, to argue that what I'd done was okay. When I denied it altogether. He says, when I kept silent... 
a couple of things started to happen to me. It says, first of all, I experienced physical sickness on account of my sin. He says, my bones wasted away. My strength was dried up. And I'm not entirely sure whether David's being literal or poetic. Because I know this, that this can happen quite literally to people whose consciences are rotten. It begins to affect your posture. The way you hold yourself. You can have headaches. Stomach ulcers. And who knows what else can happen when you harbor guilt and a heaviness of conscience in the depths of your spirit. I'm not saying that all those things are related to a guilty conscience. But what I'm saying is that you cannot go through life carrying a burden and not experience it in, in even in your physical being. I think what David's describing here is something like a kind of depression that had fallen upon him. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He felt like he was thinner, like he was drawn out. He felt like the strength was leached out from him. It was a kind of a darkness that descended upon his mind. And even if you've not felt it in your body, you've certainly felt it in your heart and your spirit at times when your conscience is heavy. A darkness of spirit, a cloud over you, an anxiety, a strain. I'm not saying all these things because I want you to feel it now. I'm saying it because I want you to understand that even David gets it. He gets what you're going through. How precious that he doesn't lie to us in the psalm. How precious that he doesn't put on that veneer, that smile but rather tells you the agony of his heart. This is why this psalm is actually a lament. I think one of the things that's missing from the church these days is that note of lament. You can walk into many churches and all you'll hear is celebration and victory all day long. But what if that's not what you feel like? Does the Bible have anything to say to you? Spend a few moments in the psalms and you discover it does. So David felt this physical oppression as his heart was ripped apart by this silence as he tried to contain his sin, but his heart was being pummeled and his spirit heavy through what he was holding on to. But it's worse than that because not only was he experiencing physical oppression, he even puts it as an oppression by God directly upon him. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now God's will towards us when we are his children is one of total blessing. You think about the ironic blessing in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We have it on the wall in our flat. We often read it to the children. and Seth almost knows it off by heart. I say it over couples whenever I've conducted wedding ceremonies. As I pronounce them man and wife. And then they turn and everyone cheers. And then I pronounce that blessing upon them. Because God 
is, one, is a father who loves us and whose favor can be towards us in that way. But, he says here, your hand was heavy upon me. Like a pressure. You think, well, maybe this is just describing what happens when somebody isn't a Christian. And they go through, sometimes people go through a torment of conscience that drives them to Christ. That drives them to know what it means to to be saved. Some of you, that's your story. And maybe you're in that point right now. But I also think that this can apply to us even as Christians. You go through life with indulging stuff that you shouldn't indulge. Violating your own conscience. Deliberately going against what you know God's told you to do. And pretty soon you're going to feel your, his hand heavy upon you. In fact, there is a bunch of places in the New Testament talking to Christians. Guys like you, me. Telling us the kind of things that can happen when God's hand is heavy upon us. In the book of James, he, he mentions a few times how some of the people in their church had become sick. And he tells them towards the end of his letter that they should call for the elders to come and pray. But he also says, if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Now, I don't think that all sickness is due to sin. That would be a really wacko thing to say. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. But it does say this, that sometimes your health can suffer on account of the sickness in your spirit. He tells us, In 1 Peter, over the page, another consequence of sin. Because he's talking here to husbands. He says that when husbands are harsh towards their wives, he says that God won't listen to their prayers. He says they need to live with their wives with understanding so their prayers may not be hindered. I think we can infer from that. That when people, not only applies to husbands, but maybe to other situations. There are times when God deliberately closes his ears to us. Because why should he listen to our prayers when we are... Walking away from him. In Ephesians 4, he describes how the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we are temples of the Spirit, can be grieved through our life and lifestyle. And Paul warns them, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I don't think it's possible to ever jeopardize your place in God's family if you are saved. But I do think it's possible to live in such a way that the Holy Spirit of God can be grieved with what's going on in your life. The double-mindedness, the duplicity, the hypocrisy. can affect your relationship with God, your sense of intimacy with him. You won't feel his pleasure upon you. You'll feel rather like David put it, your hand is heavy upon me. And there's worse in the New Testament. I don't want to go there necessarily because I think you probably get scared. God's hand, he says, was heavy upon me. And we're there, aren't we? We understand exactly where David was at this point when I kept silent. But he's walking you through his experience of the grace of God because in the very next verse, he begins to sow in hope again. 
He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. There it is, the silence is broken. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David is talking about the profound power of confession. Now, confession of wrong is probably one of the most countercultural, unfashionable things to do. If you were to go to any psychotherapist or psychiatrist with a brokenness to seek help or a counselor to seek help for things you've done wrong, I'm guessing only a tiny minority of them would ever want you to own up to your wrong. Because what's the spirit of the age? It's that we need to seek self-esteem, self-justification, that we need to be built up and made to feel better about ourselves in order to be well again. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that. I think that that is part of what it means to be a child of God, to discover God's love for you. But you can't just step right into that. When you carry a heaviness in your conscience, the last thing you need is a stupid little plaster over a gaping wound. You need the simplest, purest solution there is. I acknowledged my sin to you. I gave up running away. I stopped pretending like things were okay. And I stopped living in this agony of which way shall I go? I just told you what was going on. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I didn't cover my iniquity. Confession. Confession is like breathing. You ever hold your breath for a very long time? felt the agony that begins to develop and the desperation. There's only one thing you can think about, and it's air. When I was a kid, I used to love swimming lengths underwater in the 25-meter pool that we used to go to every Sunday in the evenings. And I, could, I could manage three, sometimes over three lengths underwater. It's over 75 meters. And pretty much by the first length, I was already feeling an agony. But I just kept going because I know you just suppress it, suppress it, keep going, keep going. But at some point, you have to give in to the inevitable. The pain builds. The lactic acid in your muscles builds up. Consciousness begins to fade away. <laughs> Not the safest thing to do underwater. <laughs> and you come up bursting out of the water and you blow out all the air and suck in something fresh and sweet. Confessions like that. You've been holding it in and holding it in and holding it in. And then you just blow out all and confess all wrong and suck in God's forgiveness. It's cleansing power. Confession is a bit like washing. I don't know if you've ever been so dirty that you felt desperate to get clean. Maybe after a long haul flight. You just want to change your underwear 
<laughs> you just want to get under a shower. You desperately feel that need to be clean. Or if you've been exercising and you've sweated as much as Liam. It's not fair to pick on Liam. He's not here, is he? <laughs> oh, he is here. There you are, man. <laughs> you've been stood over a barbecue for a couple of hours entertaining guests. And you just feel filthy. Isn't it the sweetest feeling to step under clean, flowing water? Be washed. I was fascinated to just read this week how in this book, The Righteous Mind, is not is a Jewish, not Christian author, this guy, Jonathan Haidt, and he's talking about how it's ubiquitous in human nature to associate guilt with a feeling of being dirty, physically dirty. Apparently this Chinese guy, Zong, in Toronto, had been doing these tests on people where he he got them to wash their hands and then he asked them to fill in questionnaires. He said after they were cleansed their hands, they tend to be more morally self-righteous and take a moral, morally indignant perspective on certain social evils like pornography and drug use. So when we're physically clean, we feel a little bit more righteous. He says the opposite is true as well. That when you feel immoral, you actually want to wash yourself physically in order to feel clean again. I thought that's fascinating because I think every one of us knows what that feels like, right? It brings it to this conclusion. In other words, there's a two-way street between our bodies and our righteous minds. Immorality makes us feel physically dirty. And cleansing ourselves can sometimes make us more concerned about guarding our moral purity. Confession is like that. It's like washing. Confession is like surgery. Have you ever had a physical problem that you've ignored, like a tooth that's just hurting, but you've, you've not wanted to go in? Maybe you're a little bit afraid of the dentist. I am. I, I, I despise dentists. A lump that you've been aware of that shouldn't be there. Maybe an open wound, something more acute, or a burst appendix. You can ignore these things, but eventually you have to go and see the expert. And you've got to make yourself vulnerable. And you've got to lay yourself before them and let them trust them to do their work. Because it's the only route to being mended. Confession is like that. I acknowledge my sin to you and I didn't cover my iniquity. I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. Just to be clear, friends, I'm not talking here about confession to another person. There's a place for it. It can be helpful. It can certainly help you to walk in cleanness from this day on. When there's that, you bring sins from the dark into the light and they seem to just lose their power. And nor am I talking about you coming to me like I'm some kind of priest. Do I look like a priest? Maybe a Greek Orthodox one, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any absolution power over you except the gospel. I'm not your mediator. The Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So when David's talking here about confessing, he means he went straight to God. Some of you are familiar with Psalm 51, the psalm he wrote after his worst, most despicable moment of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then arranging for her husband to die on the front lines. 
And he sat on that sin for a year, allowing it. Perhaps he wrote this at the same time, allowing it to waste away his his sense of well-being until he had to burst out and tell God about this. What he says there in Psalm 51 is he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Anyone who knows the story knows that that's not accurate. He sinned against Uriah, the husband. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel. He sinned against himself because Paul tells us that sexual sins are committed against your own body. But he says, when all's said and done, it really only boils down to one thing, God. I've offended you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When David's saying here, the power of confession, he's not going to, talking about going to lie on the shrink's couch. He's not talking about going to the booth, the confessional in the Catholic Church. He's talking about going to your Savior. Laying it bare. Now David turns so far, this has all been autobiographical. He's just walking you along his experience. But as he brings this to application to you and me, the second half of the psalm has two warnings and two promises. Let's read on. He says, therefore, he's preaching to you now, so pay attention, he says. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, here's his first warning to us. He talks about the tragedy of delay. When you sit on your wrong and don't seek to be made right with God, David is saying that there is an urgency because time is not limitless. Says it in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. With the powerful implication that if today you feel conviction, if today God's word is breaking through in your heart to bring about change, resolve, a new beginning, today's the day you should do something about it. You can't guarantee that you'll feel responsive tomorrow. Well, that next time you're at church, there'll be any inclination to repent. He says, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because there are two ways that God can approach us. He can approach us like this, with a hand, an offer of mercy. Or he can approach us, as he's about to tell us, like a rush of great waters. I think he's calling to mind the story of Noah and his flood. That Noah, with his family, had made preparations. They did what they needed to do at a time when God could be found. But only they were ready. So that when the rush of great waters came, it was too late. The tragedy of delay is the first warning, but he comes with, another, with a first promise. He says, he tells us the offer of total protection and safety. 
You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's strange because I think in a way in these verses he's describing God as the flood or the source of the flood. But he's also saying that God is, God is the hiding place. You know, if a, if a massive enemy battleship was to cruise up the Thames estuary and we were unprepared and start pummeling the city of London with giant cannons and bombs. Where would the safest place to be? Where would be the safest place to be? It'd be in the heart of that great ship, wouldn't it? And he's telling us here that God comes to you with an offer of mercy. But he's also the hiding place when danger comes. And the promise is, run to him now and you'll be okay. That is the sum total of the Christian message. Run to him now and he will accept you. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He goes on with another warning and another another promise. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. How precious that David cares enough for us that he says, I'm going to grab you and look you in the eye and tell you straight. If only more people were willing to speak to us like that when we do stupid things, right? If only more people were willing to risk friendship, risk being liked, just to tell you the truth. I will counsel you. I'll tell you straight. He says, be not like a horse or a mule. And these are not favorable comparisons, friends. A donkey. Without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. There's his warning. He's talking to us about the tragedy of stubbornness. Because this psalm is mainly about something amazing and wonderful and good. The free offer of forgiveness, the blessedness, the happiness that comes as a result of it. But you and I know that so often free things can come our way and for whatever reason we turn them down (laughs) even the best things in life can be rejected by some because of pride because of stubbornness the gospel comes to this world in that way there's no deeper sadness that I ever feel as a Christian and as a pastor than through telling somebody the beauty, the simplicity, the plainness of this gospel that we believe, that Christ died for you, that he died to take away your sin, that he would die in your place and that you can be forgiven. And then for that person to say, that sounds amazing and compelling and beautiful, but I'm walking away now. I've never been able to fully understand that reaction. It makes you feel... A desperation. Can I wake you up? If only I could just hit the switch in your mind to make you realize. He says, don't be like that donkey which has to be curbed with bit and bridle. 
Sometimes God in his mercy doesn't leave you in your stubbornness. What he does is he puts a metal bar in your mouth to guide you on the right way. And it will hurt, and it will chafe. And maybe he gets a rod out and starts whacking you on the hindquarters. And it will sting. But one way or another, he wants to lead you back to himself. The easier way, of course, is not to be like a donkey. The easier way is to say, is to give up. The first moment you hear about this stuff, say, God, here I am. I give up. I'm yours. And then he rounds it off with this precious promise. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That hunger, that longing, that desperation to experience and to walk in the love of God is available to the person, he says, who trusts in the Lord. I think he's talking again about confession. Is there anything in life that demands more trust than confession? Some of you, if you're caught in a silly little infraction of a rule, will lie immediately. Our instinct is to pretend that we're not doing wrong, isn't it? Because to confess our wrong to another is to have to express profound trust in the other person. We feel vulnerable opening up the secrets of our hearts. We also feel vulnerable because we then entrust ourselves to that person's judgment. The reason why he says that steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord is because the person who trusts in the Lord has made themselves vulnerable. Like lying on the surgeon's operating table and saying, God, I'm here before you. I lay myself before you. Your judgment, your will, I'm not going to hide any longer. I want my shame to be made known. But then he says that steadfast love will surround you. All through the Gospels, Jesus is telling us what this love feels like. In Matthew 5, he talks about it as comfort on the other side of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We lament of our sin along with David and we experience the comfort. He talks about it as satisfaction. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Suddenly your life makes sense. And all of that desperate searching and longing and angst is brought to closure in discovering that you are made to do God's will. He talks about it as the taking away of the burdens that you no longer want to carry. He says in Matthew 11 to us, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Your hand was heavy upon me, remember, and I'll give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you come to Jesus, he takes the burden off you and you experience a lightness. Your posture is corrected. You stand upright. There's a, all the clouds blow away. He talks about it in John's Gospel as being this living water. Remember how Shanice in the time of worship was describing that un, 
unstopping stream in her grandmother's village. Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You come to Jesus, he'll give you a drink that will never run dry. He says a little bit further on in John's gospel, I've come that they may have life and have it in abundance. This is what it means to experience the love of God. But it's only available for those who've gone through the confession the trust and so as this psalm has come to a close I want us to take a moment in our, in our seats to actually respond to this here and now we're going to take communion eat the bread drink the wine and it will be like breathing we exhale our sin and we inhale the grace of God And maybe if you are really conscious that perhaps even for the first time in your life, today is the day you want to get things right with God. Maybe you need to look again at that verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I didn't cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's your verse as we take communion here. Maybe you can take it for the first time because today you want to join the family of God. But maybe you're a Christian and you've been sat there thinking, God, I feel a vague, gnawing sense that things are not right, that I've not been walking with you. And maybe you need to flick back to Psalm 19, the words I read at the beginning of the service. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think it's an invitation to God to come and examine you. Search me, O God, one of the Psalms says. And know my heart. He prays, see if there be any grievous way in me. Now, Jesus told us that this was meant to be a daily practice for Christians. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we come before him day after day, we have the precious gift of daily confession and repentance. But sometimes we come to him not really sure what we need to say sorry for. It's right and appropriate that you pray, God, search my heart. By your spirit, put your finger on things in my life. Wrong motivations, wrong hidden motives and ambitions and desires. And bring them into your light that they might shrivel away and be gone. And friend, as you come to God in this way, the promise of this psalm is God will do it. He'll forgive you. And that you will experience happiness, lightness, and joy.